0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, do grab the Bible um, and turn with me to page 1206. That's um, Hebrews uh, chapter 9. Um, that's page 1206. Um, and we're reading uh, chapter 9 through to 10 verse 18. So um, when you're there, get comfy um and i'll begin hebrews chapter 9 now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary a tabernacle was set up in its first room were the lampstand the table and the consecrated table this was called the holy place Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer, outer room to, to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a hypha sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the, promise, the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary, then, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one, he entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins therefore when christ came into the world he said sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased then i said here i am it is written about me in the scroll i have come to do your will O god First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, priests stand, the priest, every priest stands and performs his religious duties Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's pray as we stand together. All for Jesus Uh, Dear Lord, uh, songs of your immeasurable worth are being sung all around this world uh, this day and uh, you are worthy of all of them. Uh, Father God, we do pray as we open up your word again that you would show us uh, your incredible worth. Uh, Show us uh, the huge value of your salvation for us in your son. Uh, Cause us to leave here seeing him, delighting in him and trusting him completely. Amen. Amen. Well, please uh, turn uh, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're continuing our series uh, in the book of Hebrews. We're up to chapter 9, verse 1 that Chris uh, read for us uh, through to 1018. Uh, Tonight it's page 1206, uh, if you've got a church Bible in front of you. 1206, Hebrews chapter 9 and into 10. Uh, We know uh, guilt uh, when we see it or when we hear it, or at least we know a guilty person when we hear their story, and we've heard many such stories in uh, recent times. In the world of sport, there is Lance Armstrong's story, a professional cyclist uh, diagnosed uh, some years ago with stage three cancer and yet uh, made an incredible comeback, fully recovered, and went on to win an unprecedented and uh, never to be repeated, I suspect, uh, seven Tour de France victories uh, in a row. Incredible. Uh, He was a huge inspiration to cyclists and even people who, up to that point, had no interest in cycling. A huge inspiration uh, to the many uh, who were uh, supported and helped by his Live Strong Foundation that supported people struggling with cancer. Uh, But in these recent days, all of that has unraveled very quickly as the full truth of uh, the most sophisticated system of cheating in sport through performance-enhancing drugs has been revealed. Teammates involved for years, doctors, officials, sponsors, you name it, all in on it with uh, Lance the Pied Piper leading them along. And in the wake of his guilt, there has been much anger, uh, disillusionment and mistrust. Uh, The head of uh, international cycling simply said this, Lance Armstrong deserves to be forgotten. Erased from our memories. And then there is uh, the story of uh, Jimmy Savile, an adored figure. Jim will fix it. Uh, Raised so much, it seemed, for so many good causes. Uh, But in these recent days, the list of those that he has harmed is almost inconceivable. Uh, Such is our reeling in horror from this. Uh, Even his uh, family want to remove any trace of him. Taking the huge step of removing his gravestone, uh, we want him forgotten. We have a strong sense of justice. We have a strong sense that people who are guilty should be found guilty and they should feel guilty. Uh, But the story of guilt is not just theirs, is it? The story of guilt is our story too. Uh, sure, uh, it won't be printed in the newspapers. It won't be uh, the dominant thing on the internet in the coming weeks. But the story of our guilt is writ just as large in the Word of God that He speaks to us. Uh, Romans three gives our story: all have sinned, uh, all are guilty, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and before the judgment seat of the God who made us, who knows us, who sees everything that we are about each and every day, uh, we are guilty. And not not in some sort of vague general sense of guilt. No, we're guilty of a myriad of crimes. Uh, Turning away from him day after day, this God who gives us life and breath and everything. Uh, Deceit, guilty of lies, guilty of denying the truth when it's uh, in front of our face, guilty of violence, guilty of viciousness of speech. Uh, We are people who are swift to harm others. Uh, We are people who are unable to live at peace with others. And that's just some of our crimes. Our crimes are played out not again in general places but in the specific details of our lives, in our homes, our workplaces, our roads that we travel on, our bedrooms. The indelible mark that we leave on this world is guilt. It's played out by the man addicted to pornography. It's played out in the person trapped in lies they tell just to save their face. It's played out in the countless meaningless acts of sexual immorality that take place each and every day. It's played out in our theft, in our drunkenness, in our gangrenous, gangrenous relationships that we just let fester. It's played out in our pursuit of arrogance towards others. Uh, we are guilty. And we look at Armstrong and Seville and we are razor sharp as to what should happen to them. They are guilty and they should feel it. Remove his gravestone, take his titles, guilty. But God's word makes this withering assessment of us two. Together they have become worthless. When uh, you look at what they should have been and what they have become, together they have become worthless. Forget them. Uh, But when it comes to our own sin, our own guilt being exposed, we're far less razor sharp, far less clear, far less honest. When it comes to our guilt, our sin being exposed, we just, well, we love to cover it up, don't we? We try all sorts of tactics. We try the the distancing ourselves from our guilt. Maybe if I get far enough away, either in distance or time, it'll go away. But it doesn't, does it? C.S. Lewis captures it for us well when he says this. We have the strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. I've heard others and I've heard myself, he says, recounting cruelties and falsehoods committed uh, when I was younger as if they were of no concern to the present hearers except perhaps as a joke. But mere time does nothing either to the fact or the guilt of sin. And if distancing ourselves from our guilt doesn't work, if it catches up with us, uh, we try justifying our guilt. Uh, You don't understand my situation. You don't know the pressure I was under. Or we come to view the standard that people are expecting of us. It's just too high. And so we lower it. But as much as we try to kid ourselves that our sin against God and against others doesn't matter, it really does. And the shame, the effects, the consequences of that follow us all too often. And if we can't justify our guilt, if we can't run from it, we try just straight out denial. I decide what's right and wrong. Uh, I'm happy to be called a sinner, perhaps as a joke, but uh, there's no sense of guilt with it. Uh, And if I ever feel guilty, what I do is I just shift the parameters of right and wrong so my actions are on the right side of that. I decide whether I'm right or wrong. I decide whether I feel guilty or not. Uh, But in the end, there's a massive problem with such a cover-up. Tim Keller, the American preacher, articulates it well when he says this of this denial of guilt. He says, guilt for wrongdoing is our last possible link with any assurance that we are significant. Guilt is a sign that there exists something in this world that transcends you. If everything is relative, if there is no God above you by which ultimate judgment comes, then sure there's no guilt and sure you're free, but nothing matters. Life has no meaning. You die, you rot. It doesn't matter a jot whether you're a kind or a cruel person. It's utterly irrelevant. However, as God's word declares to us, if life does have meaning, if we are no mere accident of nature but creatures fearfully and wonderfully made by a creative God who's made us in his image, if he's made us to know right and wrong before him, given us a mind and a heart to know and love him and live for him. And if he is the judge of all that he has made, and he declares that by the resurrection of his son, and if he has proved that he has power over your life and my life to judge us by, simply by the fact that we know our life is hemmed in by death, that is his judgment, and then we have a huge problem, don't we? The problem of our guilt before our God. And Hebrews, all the way through as we've been looking at it together, Hebrews says it: in the face of guilt, uh, you have one hope, just one, one hope in life and death, and his name is Jesus Christ. And what Hebrews 9 and 10 are going to do for us tonight, and it's a long passage, but really what we're going to see is just a series of scenes as to why he is your one hope. You know, look with me at the first scene. Uh, we're going to be following, uh, really following the, the early verses of chapter 9 to see these scenes. The first one is in verses 1 to 5. Uh, here you see, if you like, the meeting place of God, a holy God and sinful people. What, how would, what would happen if they met? Uh, what would happen if they got together? Uh, this scene, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9, it's, it's like an old photo Uh, taken some three and a half thousand years ago. This is the original meeting place of God's people, sinful people with their holy God. In one sense, it's a simple scene. There's two rooms, we're told. Uh, There's an outer room which was called the holy place, uh, which priests would enter day after day. And then behind the curtain, there was an inner room which was called simply the most holy place, uh, where one person, the high priest, would enter only once a year. We're told at the end of this little scene, verse 5, we're told he's not going into the details here, but if you look through the scriptures, the, the detail of this tabernacle, and then it became the temple when they were in the promised land. The detail tells you the, of the immense value of this place, this place where God's people could meet with their God. Everything about it shouted, this is incredible, this place. Gold everywhere. So much intricate detail. So much grandeur. So much, uh, so much to take your breath away. Everything about it was to declare to us, if you want to meet with God, you realise who he is. He is awesome. He is holy. The whole meeting place communicated that you cannot approach God casually as you would a mate. That's the problem for us, isn't it? Uh, we get used to the idea, perhaps uh, as a church family, of speaking God of God as a very approachable God. We can approach him. And with good reason, as we'll see. But the danger, I suspect, in uh, saying that too often is that we come to think that we approach him easily because, uh, well, we've just reduced him down to our size. He's just like us. Well, 9 verses 1 to 5 is just a model, actually, where told as this passage goes on of the real meeting place, the real place God dwells, and that is heaven itself. You see it there in verse 11 of chapter 9, verse 23, 10, verse 1. It keeps wanting to make clear to us, this is just a model. This is just a, a little cardboard cutout of the real thing. And you see the pictures of the heavenly courts, the real dwelling place of God. There's nothing casual about it. Absolutely everyone who is there with him is shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. Everyone is bowing before him. He is awesome. Uh, This meeting place says your God is incredible. He is without blemish. He is incredibly good beyond any measure you can imagine. His love is pure. His ways are perfect. He is worthy and wise and holy. Uh, Which should stop us in our tracks, shouldn't it? When we presume to enter his presence. When we see the extent of the problem, God is holy and I am corrupt with sin. You see, truth is, meeting a holy God as a sinner, it's an incredibly fearful experience. Uh, Coming into the presence of God is a bit like uh, going to an airport and getting to that point where you're about to go through the, the metal detector. You know the metal detector just before you go through the gates? I'm thinking about airports a lot at the moment. But that's the sort of point where up to that point, uh, you've had no real awareness or no real concern about uh, any metal that might be on your person at that point. But just as you approach this metal detector, all of a sudden you you get very quiet and very aware of the metal on you. You think, my belt, that's got metal on the buckle, doesn't it? And then there's the watch. What about the watch? And there's the wedding ring. And then I, I forgot the buckle of my shoes. They've got metal on them too. And there's the keys and the coins and the wallet... I'm covered in the stuff. I may as well be the tin man from the Wizard of Oz as I go through this thing. Well, When you approach the holy God that we have and you see him for who he is, as is faithfully revealed to us in his word, you think, ah, I am stuffed. Sin, I am covered in the stuff. Now you get that all the way through the scriptures. We've been looking in the mornings at Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet sees God, sees his glory and he says, woe to me, I'm undone. Now Luke 5, the disciple Peter, when he confronts the glory of Jesus out in a fishing boat, sees how good his God is, how without blemish, how much he loves him. He says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. And the Bible's word for this self-awareness that comes upon us at that point is called conscience. Uh, Hebrews uses it more than uh, any other Bible book and here in these chapters especially. Conscience uh, has to do with how how fit you feel to be in the presence of someone. And so given how holy our God is, uh, given he is your maker, given that you are covered in sin, how fit do you think you are to be in his presence? And you will be. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, that is our destiny. All of us will die, and after that, face judgment. Go through his detector. Uh, Hebrews 10.23 speaks of the reality of a guilty conscience. A clear self-assessment as we approach him. I'll not survive this judgment. And so as we examine the problem of our guilt before God, see how well the Bible knows us in these chapters. It tells us uh, what I think we instinctively know to be true, that there are two parts to being guilty. There's the objective part, I am guilty. I have done wrong things, I know that. And then there's the subjective part, I feel guilty, which is not so much about what I do, but what I've become, who I am as a result of that. I am guilty, I feel guilty. And although our culture uh, loves to gloss over, especially that second part, the feeling of guilt, and speaks of you've got to learn to forgive yourself. Just forgive yourself and move on. Uh, We know before the God who made us, whom we've sinned against, who is holy, that that sort of self-cleansing isn't going to fly. Not to him. And to be honest, not even to our heart. We're the ones who know that we're about to pass through the metal detector and we are the tin man. So there's the first scene, the meeting place. It exposes our problem, a holy God, a sinful person. Now Here's the second scene. You see it in verses 6 to 10 of uh, chapter 9, and that is the attempt to get clean. Now Once we've acknowledged the depth of our sin and the problem we have with guilt, it is time to move to this scene, which is where we see the attempt to be remo- uh, have this guilt removed from us. Uh, here in uh, verses 6 to 10, uh, we see again old footage, this time almost like a, one of those old Super 8 films of uh, the old system that God had given his people to be clean of their sin. Uh, here's where we see essentially that it is not in us to make ourselves clean. Uh, it is as uh, the wonderful hymn Rock of Ages declares, and not the labour of my hands can fulfil your laws, demands and demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. It's not in me. So let's have a look, 6 to 10 of chapter 9. We see the priest who represents us, who goes to this meeting place on our behalf to meet with God, to deal with our sin. Daily the priest would be in the outer room about that work, making sacrifices for our sins and his But then once a year, there was a special moment when the high priest would go to offer the sacrifice for sin in the very most holy place. And we're told here he would always go with blood. This happened day after day, year after year, first in the tabernacle and then, as I said, in the temple. Endless shedding of blood to get clean. It's, uh, I reckon, almost inconceivable to think of how much blood was shed for those sins a river of blood. And Hebrews 9 and 10, won't let us look away from the blood. It keeps putting it before our eyes in this passage. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty squeamish uh, when it comes to blood. I hate the sight of it, especially my own. But Hebrews says, don't turn away. Uh, You need to see this. The shedding of blood is right at the heart of how we get clean. Because, and you see it there in chapter 9, verse 22, wonderful verse to lock in on, you see it there, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Uh, which begs the question, doesn't it, why this horrific scene? Why these two rooms? Uh, they would have been covered in blood. Don't, don't picture in this, uh, this meeting place a sort of a pristine, white, glossy room. Uh, picture a room absolutely spattered with blood. Day after day it was shed, year after year. And to our 21st century sensibilities, it is disgusting. (laughs) Offensive. Surely if God was going to commend himself to us, uh, he would have come up with a better way. Surely if we had the job as we do to commend him to others who do not know him, we we need a more sanitised picture than this one. But again, Hebrews says, don't dare look away. You're part of this. And there is power in this blood more than you can imagine. Without this blood, 9.22, there is no forgiveness. You have to go through the blood to get clean. Why? Well, this is crucial for us to understand. And to understand it, we have to go back to the Old Testament. You can go to many places, but let me uh, cite Leviticus 17.11. There we're told that this blood symbolised life. The blood of a creature was the life of a creature. And we're told in the scriptures that the punishment, the wages of our sin, the sentence that comes because of our guilt is death. A life taken. And so this blood that was shed, this life of the animal is offered in place of our life. God is just. He will not let sin go unpunished. But in his mercy, he provides this system for another life to be taken, not ours. But here's the question. This elaborate system, this elaborate attempt to get clean through the shedding of an animal's blood, did it work? Well, uh, the verdict of Hebrews 9 and 10 is a resounding no. For all the blood shed, the stain of sin remained. In the end, uh, this system uh, showed me the seriousness of my sin, but it did not solve the problem of it. Now, you see that if you uh, turn to chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 1. There we see the high priest are endlessly about this task of dealing with our sin. Endlessly about a task that we're told they could never get rid of it. Had it have ever been enough, 10 verse 2 says that the sacrifices would have eventually stopped. There would have been a point when the priest walked into that room to make that sacrifice and God shouted out, finished, it's all paid, nothing needed. But 10 verse 4 says it is impossible for such sacrifices as animals to ever be enough. Such is the height of our offence. And if you turn to 10 verse 11, you see a pitiful picture of humanity. A futile process. Endlessly, the priest, we're told, is standing. Endlessly saying sorry. Now the, the word sorry is barely out of his mouth, the sacrifice is barely made and he turns and sees there's more sin to cover, more sacrifices needed. He can't keep up. Not the labours of our hands can fulfil the law's demands. Now This whole scene again is to teach us a lesson. Now one I suspect we refuse to learn. Now we underestimate just how holy our God is. We underestimate how deep our sin is. And so we play down the guilt. And so just like the priests here, what we do, if we don't cover up our sin, uh, we're in the tent too trying to make up for it. If we do enough good, maybe that will work. Trying to wash our hands of the sin, but the stain remains. Uh, we're like uh, Jeff Bridges uh, who played a character in the, a movie called The Fisher King. And In this movie, right near the start of the movie, he's, he's made some ridiculous statements on a radio uh, station that, he, that he, he has a show on and it's led to a whole chain of horrific events. One of them has seen a man lose his entire family. And so for the rest of the movie, uh, Jeff Bridges' character is desperate to make amends. He wants to repay all the damage he's done. And right near the end, when he realises that's not going to happen. He says, uh, I'm guilty. I, I feel that. But I'm tired of it. Why can't I just pay the price and go home? You see, for all our efforts... 10 verse 2 says the guilt stays with us. And 10 verse 3 says that's exactly what this system was meant to do. To place before our conscience, year after year, the depth of our guilt before a holy God. To get us to the point where we would finally see how serious this problem is. To see that the answer to human sin and guilt is not more education or a moral uplift or better government or religious rules or social change. No, it needs something more radical than that. Such is the violence of our crime. This whole system was established, uh, we're told again and again in these chapters, as as a shadow, as a hint of what was to come, the real solution that God would offer to our problem. You see that if you look at chapter 9, verse 9, we're told that uh, this whole thing is an illustration. Uh, This is an illustration, we're told, 9, verse 9, for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Uh, they're only a sort of an external matter. They're only a sort of a hint of this new order that was about to come, this real solution. And so I reckon as we look at Hebrews, and perhaps you've felt this in recent weeks, it's, it's easy to look at this old system and all the details in these chapters and think it's all too foreign, too barbaric, too bloody, too removed from our experience. But you see, without this shadow, without this visceral illustration, uh, the real solution makes no sense to us. Without this in place, the coming of Jesus to be beaten and tortured, to be marched up a hill, to be brutally slain on the cross, to see his side pierced by a spear and the blood flow out, it wouldn't make any sense. This whole system was put in place so that when Jesus comes and is crucified and his blood is shed, the penny drops. This whole system is there so that we can echo the words of Rock of Ages again. Not the labour of my hands can fulfil your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin couldn't atone. And then when I see this shadow of this sacrificial system giving way to the reality of Jesus Christ crucified... Finally, I can sing the last line, you must save, you alone. This whole system, this whole series of chapters is meant to leave us to declare nothing but the blood of Jesus is enough. Nothing. Now here is sacred ground for the Christian. It's not a cathedral, it's not some special place. Now, sacred ground for a Christian is a slaughterhouse on a hill in a rubbish dump outside of the city of Jerusalem where we crucified him and pierced his side and his blood flowed out. You know, former generations of Christians made much of the blood. And here we see why. Because there is nothing but the blood of Jesus that can wash me clean. All else will fail me. But his blood will never fail me. Now here is God's answer to our problem of guilt. So as we move towards a close, we come to this, our final scene, the scene of Calvary. You see it in uh, verses 11 to 22 of chapter 9 especially. Uh, In these verses, really what we're seeing is what Jesus did to fulfill the shadows, to bring forgiveness, to deal with guilt. And the old system that was carried out, as I said, first in a tabernacle and then in a series of temples over time. Well, when Jesus came, he declared that that whole system was about to be fulfilled. That the place to meet with God, the place where forgiveness could be found, was no longer a shadowy temple, but him. And he said these wonderful words while he was on earth, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Speaking of his own death and resurrection. And so when Jesus died and rose... And 9 verse 24 says he went not to some temple but to the most holy place, heaven itself, to the throne room of God. And the only reason he could go there for us was because of his blood opened that door. And with that shed he entered once and for all to do the business that we could not do that would deal with our guilt. Have a look at the comparison between the old system and what Jesus has done. Here are two verses. If you want any verses to remember from this passage, here are the two to fix your eyes on. Chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. Chapter uh, 10, verse 11, you see the old system. Day after day, the priest is standing, performing his religious duties. Again and again, he offers sacrifices that can never take away sins. But, verse 12, When this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice, that is himself for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ sat down. It was enough. Finally, that word came from heaven finished, paid, complete. Once and for all. Now, that's why the New Testament often uses the phrase, God has loved us. It's decisive. It happened, it's proved, it's delivered, it's achieved. You want to know God loves you tonight? You want to know he loves you next week as you enter into another week of whatever it holds? There is where you see it. He has loved you. And see what you've become because of that love. If you come to him in faith, 10 verse 14 says this, because by one sacrifice he has made you perfect forever. I don't know how you would describe yourself to others, but there is how God the Father describes you because of Jesus. Perfect forever. God looks at you and he sees not a trace of sin if you have come to Jesus. It doesn't mean that you don't sin, of course. I'm sure you have a catalogue just from today of the sins that you've been part of. So in what sense am I perfect? Is this some sort of fraud, some lie, some trick? No. You see it there in 10 verse 17. Their sins I will remember no more. When Christ died and carried your sins on his back, he took them away. They died with him. They're gone. And so they are forgotten. Nothing but the blood of Jesus could do that. So God looks at you and he doesn't impute any of your sin to you. Not the past, not tonight, not ever. Never remembered, never going to be dug up as a grounds to accuse you. And if you're wondering in all of this, uh, if God is so kind and so good and so merciful, why didn't he just forgive me? Why all this? Well, let me ask you, in all seriousness, have you never had to forgive someone? Or perhaps if you have had to forgive someone, have you never done it? If someone has wronged you, not not just a little bit, but deeply wronged you, there is an indelible sense of guilt. There is a huge debt there. You can't just shrug it off. You can't just say, oh, it's okay. At which point you have two choices, don't you? You either withhold the forgiveness, you hold it against them, all the cost of it, all the pain of it, it goes on them and they deserve it. Even though they can never repay that debt. Or you can forgive. From the heart, forgive, real forgive, uh, forget sins type forgive. And if you've ever done that, you'll know that real forgiveness, not pretend forgiveness, real forgiveness costs dearly. You suffer, you bear the cost, you pay the price that they deserve. It's incredibly hard. But now let me ask this what if it's the other way around? What if you're here tonight and you're the guilty one? The real harm you have perpetrated, you can't pay it. And I'm sure there are people like that tonight. You know of things you've done that you can never take back. Well, that's who we are before our holy God. And in that situation, imagine if God says to us, there is no forgiveness left for you. It's gone. The bank is empty. I've got nothing left after what you did. Friend, the only thing between you and me and hearing that tonight from our God is the blood of Jesus. That's the only thing. The cross says there is real forgiveness and it comes at the cost of the blood of the Son. Because of Jesus' blood, those who come to him, the verdict that falls on our life is incredibly different. Everything changes. You see, the pattern of our world, we saw it with uh, Jimmy Seville and uh, Lance Armstrong at at the start, the pattern of our world is you're guilty and you deserve to be forgotten. I was uh, seeing a BBC piece uh, this week where there's a sort of a frantic effort, and you can understand it, can't you, to remove any trace of the man? Uh, streets that were named after him have already been changed. Uh, buildings that had little plaques for him taken down. Charities stopped. Gravestones removed. We want him gone, forgotten. And we'll see the wonder of God's love in Jesus. We deserve to be forgotten like that. Not a trace. But 10 verse 17 says, it is our sin that gets forgotten. And here is the one who, when we shout, why can't I just pay the price and go home? Says, you can't, but I have, and you're free to stay. The only thing that can put your soul to rest tonight, really at rest, conscience at rest, guilt cleansed, not only the reality of guilt, but the feeling of guilt is the blood of Jesus So much so that as we will see next week, that this will enable us to be able to approach him with confidence. This forgiveness transforms us. That's what we'll see next week. But I simply close with this. If Hebrews 9.27 is right, and it is, if you are a person who is destined to die once, and after that face judgment once, and you are, you need to put your faith in the one who was sacrificed once. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can get you through that judgment. Nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so often we make light of who you are. We diminish your holiness, your goodness, your purity, your love. We diminish the eternal offence of the way we treat you and one another as creatures made in your image. And so, Father, we want to repent of that. but We want to praise you for your Son, whose blood is enough. And so, Father, as we leave here tonight, let us leave as those who are trusting in nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen.